You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Arvid Krishna, IBM chairman and CEO, joins the Post to discuss the company's latest innovations and what the workplace could look like post-pandemic. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today in our continuing presentations on the path forward, our guest is Arvind Krishna, who's the chief executive of IBM, a company that was present at the creation of the digital era. Uh, welcome, Arvind, to Washington Post Live. David, it's my pleasure to be here and speak with you. So I want to begin with the announcement that your company made today about a new chip that uh, the uh, release says will be able to uh, pack two-thirds more transistors on a chip. I read something that said you'll be able to put, if this can be right, 50 billion transistors on a chip the size of a fingernail. Tell us about this new technology, how you put it together, and what it will mean for computer users. David, uh, I couldn't be more proud of what our team has accomplished here. So to put it in terms, we often talk in the semiconductor industry about moving in nanometers, meaning how small are the features on these uh, semiconductors? And this one at two nanometers, just to give you a sense, the world today is at seven nanometers and it's most advanced. So this is quite a bit smaller. And in terms of the technology involved, human hair is 10,000 nanometers. So that gives you a sense of how tiny these features are. But um, apart from the technological marvel, let me talk about the advantages. It uses one-fourth as much energy as today's seven nanometer technology. So that tells you that you can make cell phones that may be four times longer in battery life, or you could power a data center with one-fourth as much energy as before. You also get twice as much performance, well, 40, 43% more performance, uh, but uh, I'll call it, uh, uh, I'll call it 40 to 50% more performance. So you put all that together, and that really gives us a way forward for what we can do in semiconductors. Now, uh, if you look at semiconductors, it's a huge and important part of the global supply chain. So having these kind of advances happen and being able to then work with our partners, whether it be people like Samsung or Intel, et cetera, to get them into manufacturing is important. And let's all remember, the semiconductors, they power not just computers, they power 5G, which we all look forward to. They power artificial intelligence, and they're going to power quantum computing uh, to put a point on what is coming down the road. We don't uh, often think, or at least I don't, of IBM as a as a, a, a chip making company. Tell tell us how your research extends to that area first, and then second, there's been a lot of concern in national security debates about whether we're going to be dependent on uh, foreign sources uh, of, of, of high-end chips in the future. Will this advance help solve that problem? Will you be making some of these chips in the U.S.? Yeah, David, great questions on both. So let me address the first one and then the second. We are not a semiconductor manufacturer, so we should be clear about that. However, we invest in advanced semiconductor R&D because it's really important to us to make sure that the technologies can progress. And then we work with partners to bring those to market. And many of the advances we have made, be it at uh, 10 nanometers before or at seven, 
and now at two, they make their way into the market through our partners. And I mentioned a couple with both Samsung and Intel in that uh, in that uh, model. It's critical because I don't believe we'll be able to get to what we need to do in 5G or artificial intelligence or quantum computing without those advances. For example, we at IBM make really advanced quantum computers, physical machines, not just software and simulation. In order to make those advances, we need to have tremendous skills and expertise in how semiconductors could get deployed over there. So that's an area of, of incredible R&D for us, and that's why we keep investing on that. Now, on the flip side, you asked about uh, the national um, security implications. I think that the last year and a half has shown us that having a supply chain closer to home is critical in many aspects of this. We strongly encourage the United States to be a powerhouse in semiconductors. And because of that, whether it's the CHIPS Act or whether it's the National Semiconductor Technology Center, we do urge the government to act on funding those and on getting those uh, uh, built up and in order to bring semiconductor expertise in here. By the way, it's not just semiconductor process. It also behooves us to worry about semiconductor design, all the design tools, and in all those capabilities that allow those advances. Look, semiconductors underlie the fabric of what we do today in modern life. And so it's important to be able to be self-sufficient on those technologies. We're having a reminder of that uh, dependence on, on semiconductors with the current uh, chip shortage, which is uh, affecting all kinds of industries, uh, automaking, uh, a whole range of things you wouldn't think are, are linked to semiconductors. I assume this new technology is far enough down the road, it won't have any effect on immediate supply problems, but do you think those supply problems are getting getting solved? I think the supply problems, David, to the point you're making are upon us, whether it's automobiles, whether it's computers, whether it's storage systems, whether it's tape drives, whether it's consumer electronics, we can see it in all over. As I talk to my peers in the industry across all of them and more, I, I think it's a very real issue. Uh, the advances we just talked about will not come to market for some years. So it is not going to help solve the immediate problem. Uh, actually, I believe that it's going to likely take a year or two to solve the immediate issues in the best case. So it's not that we can solve them very quickly. What we can do is work with the manufacturers outside the United States right now to try and solve and alleviate these issues for the most critical industries. But that is going to mean that somebody is going to have to make calls on which industry gets prioritized versus not. And that's a very hard call to make, I believe, because the impact, should I worry about education, which means I should worry about computers and laptops for children in schools, or should we worry about uh, medical care devices? Think about COVID-19 around the world, or should we worry about uh, auto manufacturing, or should we worry about industrial automation? We can go on and on. And I think these are just really hard dilemmas. So I think that the correct answer is we need enough capacity to solve all of these issues. We shouldn't have to pick and choose as we are having to do right now. The, the, that uh, estimate that we could be one or two years away from uh, having a sufficient supply of, of, of semiconductor chips is gonna uh, uh, strike people, I think. And your point about triage 
uh, also is 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 concerning. Let me ask you about another interesting thing that IBM has done over the last year, and that's to make a big acquisition. You spent uh, thirty-four billion dollars to buy a company called Red Hat, which is big in in cloud computing. And I'm curious about your strategy going forward. What you hope to do with the Red Hat acquisition? Uh, how you want to be a, a player in that uh, cloud computing environment where you've got some huge competitors, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, to name the most obvious. Yeah, so David, uh, it comes from what we believe our, our clients want to do. As we talk to enterprises around the globe, the environment they look at is that they all are going to put some of their infrastructure on public clouds. Most that we talk to are not going to pick only one, they'll pick a few, at least a couple, whether that's for resiliency or for reasons of geography or of innovation. In addition, they're going to run a lot of their infrastructure still on private in their own data centers. So the environment of the future is a few public clouds and uh, their own data centers. If you take that to be the environment, then you need technologies that let you straddle across those. So they might well do some development that may be unique to a public cloud, but they're going to do some that goes across these environments. Red Hat offers technologies that go across all of these. I think we'd all agree, Linux has become the operating system that people prefer over almost all others. So Red Hat is one of the primary um, providers of Linux with the Red Hat Enterprise Linux system. There's this technology that's talked about that just, I mean, I'm not going to get into the details, but just the names. Uh, containers and Kubernetes are often talked about as being the fabric that ties computing together. And Red Hat is one of the primary providers of these more modern technologies. So when you say what's a platform that can straddle multiple public clouds and your own data centers, Red Hat provides that, that very fabric, what I call a hybrid cloud platform. And so that is a capability that then allows our clients to go forward and modernize their environments, and that we estimate is a trillion dollars of opportunity for all of us combined. So then the other point you made is about, you call them competitors. I'd call them partners, because as we take Red Hat, Red Hat runs great on Amazon and on Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud, and on our own um, servers, and on customers' own data centers. So if it runs great across all these environments, I prefer to think of these as our partners and we provide a hybrid cloud platform that straddles the public clouds and the private infrastructure. But clearly from what you say, you, you see this area of computing as being a significant contributor to revenues going forward. We do. So when you look at Red Hat, uh, I think the last quarter we reported 17% growth. For the year 2020, we reported 18% uh, growth after we acquired it. And it is not just the growth of the Red Hat technologies alone. We then think about all of the software capabilities that ride on top. And we at IBM have containerized our software, as have many other uh, providers. I mean, I can throw out some industrial names like Schlumberger, Siemens, Palantir. They all work with us to take their technologies onto this base. So that's the next multiplier. And many clients need expertise and help to modernize their cloud journeys. And they have leveraged our services practice, uh, GBS, to make those journeys forward. It's almost a multiplier. 
for a dollar of Red Hat software, you can easily get another three to five to eight dollars in other places. Some we will get, some our partners will get, and that's the wonderful thing about having an ecosystem. You all benefit, and in the end, the client wins the most because they get the best capability for their own purposes. And so that's the journey we're on, and that's why Red Hat iView has been an incredible success so far, but there is even more to come. It's going to become even more important and provide even more value to all our clients as you keep going. Let me ask you, Ar Arvind, about another uh, area of uh, computing future. You mentioned it earlier, and that's quantum computing. It's uh, something that I have a particular interest in because I wrote a novel a couple of years ago called The Quantum Spy, which is a spy novel about US and Chinese battles to, to dominate this technology. Give us your basic uh, primer on quantum 101, why this form of computing is different from the uh, classical computing architecture that we know and, and what the potential is in terms of transforming how we do our computation. And David, that reminds me, is one of the reasons I was so excited to get interviewed by you and talk to you is I do have my copy of the novel and I got to find a way to get it to you to get a signed copy. So, okay. but going on from there, uh, look, quantum computing is very different than today's computing. Today's computing is based on what we call digital bits and those are perfect zeros or ones. So in a deterministic world, today's computers work great. Think about your bank account, think about uh, browsing information, et cetera. But we are running near the end of what Moore's law can do. Much as I talked about 40% performance improvement, there are many problems we cannot handle on today's uh, computers, even down the road, uh, be it uh, materials, uh, be it certain risk computations, something as simple as the caffeine molecule, you cannot uh, uh, possibly model on today's supercomputers. So you step back and say, is there a technology that could do that? And that is what quantum computing can do. In quantum computing, uh, the underlying, I call it measure as opposed to bits, is qubits, uh, as in quantum bits. And these uh, work, I'll call it in a probabilistic realm. So they kind of model out what's happening in the physical world. And uh, problems in risk, problem in materials, like maybe a strong alloy for an airplane, or maybe in batteries, the better lithium technology, so I can make a battery that's 10 times or 100 times denser, are the kinds of problems that quantum computers will solve. Now, the underlying technologies on these are dramatically different. We talk about superconducting uh, semiconductors. We talk about trapped ions and other technologies like this. So going back to our first statement on two nanometers, semiconductor technologies still play a very important role, but a bit different than in classical computers. Where are we now? So talking about uh, quantum uh, computers, we are in that range of 30, 50, 60, maybe 100 qubits right now, this year as we speak, as we look at ourselves and others who work on these technologies. We have put a roadmap out that by 2023, we expect to be on a thousand qubit computer. So 2023 or 2024, we are going to be able to start solving problems that could have a large impact. Now, there's some hard engineering challenges between now and then, reduce the errors in these machines, make sure they can stay up for long periods of time, uh, make sure that they are fully programmable. 
but I have confidence we're going to get there. And as we get there, problems in materials, problems in risk, problem in financial modeling, such as uh, pricing, maybe EV battery technology, then going down the ro road a little bit, problems around supply chain, how to minimize maybe fuel consumption, maybe weather predictions and modeling, though that's probably a bit, little bit harder, are all problems that will be in the realm of quantum computers. And that means you bring so much value when we think about the climate change crisis, we think about lightweight materials, we think about EVs, so much promise in what these technologies are going to deliver to us a few years down the road. And it's now a few years, it's no longer a few decades. So I, I want to just press you on that because this question of how near um, real practical quantum computing is uh, it continues to be debated. I thought, Arvind, that you were just being pretty clear that by 2023 20, or 2024, a few years away, you'll have a quantum computer that is uh, usable, that is programmable, that, that uh, is robust enough to avoid uh, rapid decoherence, that, in other words, that works. And that, that's a pretty striking if that's, if that's your expectation. Uh, that's correct, David. And uh, David used a few terms that we should just explain to the audience a little bit. You use decoherence. So there's entanglement, there is uh, decoherence, and there's a few other words like that. Decoherence is a measure for how long the computer can run before it kind of becomes chaotic. And entanglement is kind of how big can you get and still be very, very useful. I think we'll make advances that decoherence becomes 10 times uh, better than today. And I think we'll make advances that the size will become between 10 to 20 times bigger than today. You put those together, and that means that you are 100 to 1,000 times better than today. And that really brings a lot of problems within, uh, within range. So David, I, I'll say I have high confidence, but these are hard enough technologies that I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't understate the difficulty of the engineering challenge. I don't think we actually have a physics challenge till this scale. Maybe when you go from a thousand to a million, we'll have another physics challenge of how do we connect these things. But I think at a at a hundred to a thousand, the challenge is going to be engineering. Can we get these things working? Can we get them uh, cooled appropriately? Can we get them all stable and talking to each other? Do we control them correctly? Um, and those are all problems which we all believe are solvable but takes uh, incredible skills and expertise to get there. Well, for the technologists in our audience, that's a pretty exciting uh, forecast. Uh, and, and thank you for, for that. I want to ask you about your competitors in this new quantum computing space, both uh, domestically, uh, who you think um, uh, your, your key rivals are, and then uh, at a more fundamental level, how you assess that the Chinese progress in quantum computing and in other um, uh, cutting edge technologies, uh, artificial intelligence and others. As you know, uh, Eric Schmidt, former uh, CEO of Google, just released a report on uh, artificial intelligence in which he warned that the Chinese were really gaining ground and was concerned about the competitive challenge. What do you think? Yeah, broad set of topics and broad set of questions here, David. So first on quantum, there are three or four different use cases for quantum that are really interesting to different uh, nations and to different companies. 
We are interested in quantum computing for all the use cases that I talked about. But there are other aspects around quantum communication and quantum sensing that are also of interest to a lot of other uh, uh, people. If I look at what is going on in the world, certainly uh, not just China, but some other nations have made a lot of advances on quantum communication. So that is the ability to talk amongst different places without the ability to be overheard at all. So you don't even need encryption in some sense because you can't be overheard. I think that's really, really important and that they are going to go do. When I look at quantum computing, absolutely, not just China, but many other countries are also going to go after it. I believe that right now the United States is ahead on the technology, but it takes an incredible amount of investment to keep going there. You talked about competition. Is it competition? Is it co-opetition? Inside the US, I can name some companies. Certainly Google has a massive effort along these tracks. Microsoft has an effort along these tracks. From what I can see, Google's definitely both hardware and software. Microsoft seems to be more software, but they do invest in some hardware as well. There's quite a few startups in the space. Um, IonQ, which is a company down in Maryland in your neck of the woods is one, um, but there are others associated with certain universities. And there is a few more in Canada. There's a couple more around Oxford and Cambridge in the United Kingdom. And I'm sure there are more than that. So it's an area which is of such incredible interest. That said, we partner deeply, whether it's in these countries that I mentioned, whether it's some of the startups, in order to keep going. And there's still some debate about which of the underlying quantum computing technologies will be the most successful. So I'll so, take a pause on that and just say, look, this is where public-private partnerships, because if some of these technologies are that risky, that is actually where federal funding for research really makes a big difference. Because when you help on doing that, companies can take even more risks, bolder risks. And as I'll give two examples before proved, it really results in a better national economic competitiveness. If I take what happened with the NASA and moon landing programs, the technologies out of that, I would say gave a boom time in the 60s and 70s. If I look at what DARPA did around the internet, I think we can give a lot of credit there for what happened in the 90s and uh, 2000s uh, for going forward. So, sorry, long, long, long answer to your question there. Uh, long, but, but fascinating. And we, we thank you for really helping us uh, think about the technology. I want to shift gears. Uh, away from uh, problems of technology to, to a very human problem that the whole world is focusing on, but I'm sure you as an Indian American are, are focusing on especially, and that's the, the COVID crisis in, in India. Uh, you must have friends and perhaps family who've been affected by this. I think uh, everyone is curious uh, what uh, news uh, is coming out of India and whether you think India is beginning to get this problem under under better control. Yeah, David, it's really heart-wrenching and for me personally to watch what's happening there. And you're right. Um, when I watched last year, there was bad news, but similar to the rest of the world. This year, clearly, there is, whether it's a variant of the virus or whether it's behavior or something is causing a massive, massive issue there, and it is touching literally every family I speak with. So what can we do about it? So first I want to touch on our employees. So what we do for our employees there is we've got to step up what we can do around medical insurance so they feel that they're not going to get financially strapped. 
Can we offer more and more access to telehealth and telecare? Can we work then with the local authorities? Because when we work on raising uh, funds or equipment that has to go through the local health authorities. So a number of us got together. We created a global task force for pandemic readiness and some of the first actions. So this is under the auspices of both the American Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable. I think 40 of us have already signed up. We put out uh, some numbers yesterday. We are trying to organize resources working with both the US government and the government of India to make sure we can get them what they need first. And some of the things you're acting on, I think is a thousand ventilators, most of which should be there in a short number of uh, uh, days, maybe a couple of weeks. And uh, oxygen concentrators, because that's a big, big shortage. Uh, we have already committed 25,000, the first few thousand of which have already landed, and we'd like to get ourselves up to 100,000. We also want to work with all of the companies that operate in India and the United States to make sure that we share best practices with each other. But watch the space. Everybody I've spoken to wants to help. People are willing to commit resource, they're willing to commit money, they're willing to coordinate. And I think, David, it's a really important area where the governments also have to coordinate. And I'm happy to see some of the positive statements that came out in the last few days out of the White House, as well as out of the National Security Advisor uh, in order to help uh, India, but other countries as well get through this crisis. That's, that's uh, encouraging. I want to ask about uh, how COVID has affected and in some ways changed your company. You have uh, 350,000 employees, uh, roughly, and uh, you've said that your workforce going forward will be a hybrid, that is, some work from home, some work in the office. Curious, as you made this uh, planning, how you saw the trade-off in terms of giving employees the freedom to work from home, but maintaining that IBM corporate culture, which has been part of your secret for, for decades. So David, that's why the way I was used the term hybrid, it's not so much that some work from home and some work from the office. I use hybrid as in everybody will work from the office on some days and from home on some days. So that's what I want to get to, which is the best of both worlds. So insisting that everybody be in the office five days a week, whether eight or 10 hours a day, I think is what we can say. We have learned that we can do our work from home as well. That said, there is serendipity, there is hallway conversations, there is creativity. There are some things that are just done a lot faster when there's six people around a large table. I'll say a large table so that we do it in a, in a physically safe way these days um, that, that you miss. Also, when you onboard new people, how do they learn from others? How do they learn the best way to do things? You can get that a lot easier when they have somebody experienced uh, to speak with. So in order to get the best of both worlds is why I use the term hybrid. People, I believe, will work partly in the office and partly at home or wherever they want to. And that is what will enable us to preserve the best of both flexibility, but also have the culture preserved. So I, I want to ask you in the remaining two minutes that we have to speak about uh, national security issues that uh, confront uh, IBM and all the tech companies. Uh, we had uh, over the last year the revelation of the so-called solar winds uh, hack, which had pretty uh, widespread and, and potentially devastating impact. 
that the uh, U.S. government has been a little bit behind in, in detecting uh, what was going on. It was private companies that, that really had the first word. Are you comfortable as the chief executive of IBM working more closely with the U.S. government going forward to detect uh, attacks like this? Uh, and, and, and do you see yourselves uh, as as having a special responsibility in the United States where IBM uh, was founded and originally based? So the short answer, David, is I actually believe cybersecurity will be the issue of the decade. Not a surprise because getting hold of people's data and information is the modern way to get uh, to capture value. All right, so this is only going to increase as an issue. I actually fundamentally believe that the US government should create maybe a program like NASA, equivalent to putting man on the moon, with that level of investment and a public-private partnership to work together. I am quite comfortable working with the US government towards these goals. That said, it's got to be done with certain protections. We are not going to give our clients data to whoever wants to look at it. However, we should share information on what may be vulnerabilities, on what may be attack uh, methodologies on what we are observing, we are more than happy to cooperate with those as long as there is respect still for privacy of certain information and on what may be happening to certain named uh, clients. So I, I believe it's certainly possible to create those uh, guardrails as I'll call them, but I would encourage if we don't spend a hundred million or a billion, if I look at what NASA did and what DARPA did, you need to spend perhaps a hundred billion on this and I really, it, it, it surprises me that we are not stepping it up to that level of public-private partnership on these topics because the consequences, as you pointed out, could be dire. I mean, infrastructure can get shut down, not just digital, physical as well. Companies could be brought to their knees and, uh, and we need to go work on this so that it does not happen to us. So Arvind Krishna, uh, Chief Executive of IBM, thank you for a fascinating a uh, tour of some of the most interesting cutting edge issues uh, in digital innovation. Uh, we really are grateful to you for joining Washington Post Live. My pleasure to be here, David. Thank you. So uh, join my colleague, Francis Stead Sellers at three o'clock today for a conversation about the HBO documentary, The Crime of the Century, about the role of major drug companies in the nation's opioid crisis. We'll have other programming for you ahead. I'm David Ignatius for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.